Dennis Wilder is a research fellow for the Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue at Georgetown University, where he is also a professor in practice. Previously, Dennis served on the National Security Council staff for six years working on China and broader Asia issues. Dennis was also a career CIA officer working on and managing both analysis and operations on China and East Asia. Dennis joins us today to talk about his career and all things China. He's terrible for China. Xi Jinping is retrograde. Uh, Xi Jinping doesn't have, I think, a worldview that makes sense. Xi Jinping has moved too far too fast. We'll be right back after a break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Dennis, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is very nice to have you on the show, and it's very nice to talk with you again. Well, it's great to be here with you, Michael, and uh, we spent a lot of years together, so... Um... We did, we did. Um, in fact, I wanted to tell my listeners that you and I worked very closely together while we were both at CIA, and it was, it was always a pleasure to work with you. Right. So, Dennis, I want to start with your career, so kind of three basic questions. How did you end up at CIA, how did you end up spending your career on China? And then walk us through your career trajectory inside the government. Sure. Glad to do that. I came by this honestly. I was born and raised in Southeast Asia. My father was a Methodist minister who served the overseas Chinese community in Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, and Penang. So I became fascinated with Chinese culture. Hmm. I had a front row seat watching Lee Kuan Yew take Singapore from a small colonial backwater to one of the highest standards of living in East Asia. In college, I spent my junior year abroad in the Yale and China program at Chinese University of Hong Kong. And that was a transformative year Mao died that year, and it was still the end of the Cultural Revolution. And in fact, one of my roommates was from Guangzhou, and his brother was in the Red Guard. I remember him smuggling radio crystals across the border so his family could listen to international broadcasts. You know, what's interesting here, Dennis, is that most of the people who we have on talking about China, when they answer this question, they, they had no China touch points at all until you know, coming to the government or 
um, at least, you know, going to college and yours was from the very start. So yeah. that's very different. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of born to this. Yeah, interesting. In Hong Kong, I was exposed to the work of a man named William Whitson, who was a U.S. military officer who studied the Chinese People's Liberation Army. And that hooked me on the study of the PLA. I went to graduate school at Georgetown, had the chance to be in seminars with Dr. Kissinger, and was fascinated by his stories of the secret negotiations with Premier Zhou Enlai. Um, upon graduation, I actually accepted a job offer to become a banker with First Chicago, which was one of the first banks to have operations in China. However, when taking my oral finals, former CIA director Colby was one of the examiners. When he asked me what I planned to do, I told him I was going to become a banker. He responded, wrong answer. <laughs> and he put me in touch with the CIA recruiters. That's interesting. You should have gone the banking route. I know. I, I, I always wonder. I have a feeling I might be a little richer today than I am. Um, so I began at the CIA in what was then called the Eastern Forces Division of the Office of Strategic Research. Uh, we were really the stepchild of the office because the mighty Soviet Red Army yeah, was a strategic yeah. threat. And people jokingly referred to our account as the largest antique army in the world. At the time, it was true. Yeah. Uh, but I had the time of my life because, first of all, I had access to the kind of intelligence on China that I never could have had anywhere else. Also, they sent me to military bases to learn about the military. So I went to armor school at Fort Knox, air defense school at Fort Bliss, missile school at Vandenberg, and I even went with the 82nd Airborne on a joint service exercise in the Mojave Desert. That's great. And that's the kind of stuff the agency does, right, to develop its officers. Oh, absolutely. Exactly, exactly what happened to you, right. yeah. I also got to travel in China as a tourist because in those days the agency was a little worried about sending people into China, but being part of the tour group was a way to go very safely. And so I was one of the early tourists into China. And then talk about your trajectory. Sure. I became accomplished military analyst and I stayed on the China desk working my way up the ladder to become China division chief. During that time, the highlights were the discovery of Chinese missiles in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, Tiananmen Square Task Force, Interagency Taiwan Strait Task Force, the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, and then the EP3 crisis of 2001. Yeah. Out of the EP3 crisis, I was actually asked by Condi Rice to become China director on the National Security Council. But George Tennant convinced me that he wanted me to stay. And so it wasn't until George Tennant stepped down as director that I went back to Condi Rice and asked if I could come to the National Security Council. And fortunately, she said yes. You were let out of jail when you first departed. I didn't want to put it that way. Uh, you know how persuasive George could be when he wanted. Well, he, 
Well, he listens to the podcast, so we got to be nice to him here. <laughs> okay. Yes. He was very gentle about it. And actually, it was awkward with Condi because I couldn't say that it was because of George right. uh, that I wasn't coming. So I made, yeah. made a family excuse, I think, at the time. Life at the National Security Council was fascinating. I accompanied the president on Air Force One to all his trips to my region, including the 2008 Beijing Olympics. G8 summits in Japan, APEC summits in Australia and Peru, and visits to South Korea, Vietnam, Indonesia, Singapore, and Mongolia. I also organized the state visit to Washington of President Hu Jintao of China, Prime Minister Kozumi of Japan, and Prime Minister Howard of Australia. Two of those three visits went very well. I will have to say the Hu Jintao visit was a bit of a disaster for me because a woman in the journalistic stands that are out in front of the two presidents began screaming at the president of China. Oh, I remember uh, that, yeah. Right. And after the lunch for the president of China, Condi called me over and said that the press would like to speak to somebody about this topic. And would I go down to the press briefing room and explain the circumstances? <laughs> uh, a journalist, I think it was David Sanger of the New York Times, said he had never seen anybody so uncomfortable in his life. Yeah, you and, weren't trained for that. No, I certainly wasn't. And I, the only condition I made uh, to Condi was, I said, you have to let me say that the president apologized to the Chinese president, uh, which fortunately they did let me say. You came back to the agency then for a short period of time, is that right? Uh, longer than a short period. Actually, you allowed me to take a sabbatical year at Brookings. At least you told me that I would get a sabbatical year at Brookings. <laughs> Did you not get it? I remember telling you that. <laughs> well, candidly, Michael, you called me out to lunch about six months into the Brookings assignment, and I knew something was wrong because you didn't call people to lunch very often. And you said to me that there were things that needed to be done on the PDB staff, the president's daily briefing staff, that there was going to be some work to reinvent the PDB to better fit the intelligence requirements of President Obama, and would I come back and be senior editor? No, that's right. Now, right. now this is all, right. it's it's all, all, coming, it's back. all coming back to me. <laughs> well, it was a great assignment, I have to say. Good. Yeah. Um, and uh, we did, as you well know, do some revisions to the PDB. The most interesting one was, of course, at one point, President Obama asked why he was getting a paper copy and could he have an iPad. Yeah. And uh, you remember that wasn't the easiest thing to create a secure iPad, but we did it. And it was just a fascinating assignment. And, of course, broadened my view from East Asia to the whole world. And working with briefers like yourself was a real joy. And the nice thing about a job like that, actually, is I found that when you went home at night, you were done. Things either were completed or they were forgotten. Right. But the nice thing the next morning is you always got a critique back. Yeah. So you got a report card every day, which I found really exciting. 
particularly uh, from President Bush absolutely, um, and, right. and President Obama. Yeah. yeah. So, so, Dennis, you're one of the best, if not the best managers and leaders of analysis that I saw during my career. You developed your officers. In fact, you were responsible for developing, you know, two of the guests that have been on my show, Chris Johnson and yep. John Culver. You know, both of them came of age under you. You were also adept at doing just the right analysis, right? Answering just the right question at just the right time for senior policymakers. And I think you often talk to your analysts about the importance of that and the importance of staying on the arc of policymaking. Can you can you just talk about that just for just for a minute or so? Sure. Uh, let me make a couple comments before I go to the arc of intelligence. One thing that I learned from Marty Peterson, who you've had on your show and was one of the best analytic yep. minds I've ever uh, worked with, was that the hard truth is we're optional equipment for the policymaker. We like to think that people are just waiting to read the PDB or the wire in the morning, and it's not true. They start their day by scanning the newspapers to see if their name is in the newspaper. Right. Uh, <laughs> they want to know if their mother's going to be proud of them or upset with them. Um, <laughs> and they have all kinds of people coming at them with independent information, sometimes better than what we've got. And so what we have to do, our job really is to establish one policymaker at a time that our brand is reliable. We must prove we have a strong product that's going to make their jobs easier. And frankly, make them look smart. Yeah. And timeliness is the key. If you deliver great analysis before the policymakers are focused on the issue, it's often ignored. If you deliver great analysis after the decisions are made and action is taken, um, you're going to be ignored or even resented. So the job is to understand the policymaking cycle, the decision cycle. That's not easy. Hmm. In part because policymakers keep these kinds of discussions extremely secret. And they may not want the CIA in the room because they worry you might say something that undermines the policy proposals that they're making. Mm -hmm. And so what you've got to do is really develop the relationships so that they will invite you into the room. And one of the ways I did this was just constantly working the policymaking community, constantly asking them what questions did they need answered, uh, where were they on various issues, what was the timing of decision making. And of course, we would get some of that directly from the president and the PDBs and the questions that he asked. But it was very important to stay connected to the senior director at the National Security Council, the people at state, the people at defense. And you really have to be very entrepreneurial. Too many times, unfortunately, analysts think that because the paper says CIA on the top of it and top secret, that people are automatically going to read that product. Yeah, and yeah. that's just not true. It's just not true. Dennis, I want to spend the, the rest of our time talking about China today and U.S. policy toward China today. But before we do that, 
I want to ask you about something that has become, you know, quite the conventional wisdom, which is that the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations all made a huge strategic error in naively believing that we could turn China into a liberal democracy through economic engagement. Can you can you comment on that conventional wisdom? I have to say I'm rather befuddled by this new conventional wisdom. It was not at all my experience with any of those administrations that people were thinking that because we engaged economically with the Chinese, that somehow this was going to turn them into a liberal democracy. What I found at the White House in dealing with the president and dealing with Steve Hadley as the national security advisor and Condi Rice as the secretary of state was what they had designed, and I'd point you to the 2006 national security strategy where this is laid out, was what I would call a hedging strategy toward China. In other words, they hoped that China would move in the direction of what we call the responsible stakeholder, a country that would accept the international norms, the, if you will, the liberal world order at some point, and that they'd want to wholly embrace a system that had worked very well around the world since World War II. At the same time, we were conscious of the fact that China may take a different direction, that my, China might want to reshape the world order to its own image, and therefore bolstering the defenses and keeping them strong with our allies, keeping American power in the Pacific extremely strong and forward deployed was a necessity. And so I think that when people say that we were naive. I don't think we were naive at all. Mm. And I must say that you have to say that we kept the peace on the Taiwan Strait. We kept the ties with Taiwan strong. We did bolster the defenses in East Asia. And we worked with China where we could. For example, the six-party talks on North Korea which were successful in that time period. We actually got them to take down the Yongpyong cooling towers. And it was only the incapacitation of the North Korean leader that really derailed the six-party talks. But this was something where we worked well with the Chinese. We helped lift hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty, in some ways stabilizing that country. So I think when people say engagement failed, I'm not sure I know what they're talking about. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Dennis Wilder. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Dennis, China and our policy toward China today. And I want to start with how you see the challenge that China poses to the United States. How would you characterize that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the question is, what are China's intentions? You know, we can look at capabilities all we want, and actually, when you think about the Chinese military and its activities opposite Taiwan, we're quite good at looking at what they have. Yeah. The question is, what is their intent? On the strategic side, is their intent to reshape the world order? Is their intent to move us somehow out of East Asia and take primacy of the region? Or do they have even broader ambitions to be the number one global power? I don't think that's a question we can answer yet. I Mm. think we certainly see that China wants to push us back in the region and that they would like to have primacy in East Asia. But I'm not sure about global ambitions. And is that because, Dennis, is that because they haven't figured that out yet? Yes. I always say the Chinese, and maybe I should say the Chinese Communist Party, is a mix of hubris and insecurity. Their hubris is they believe they're the rising power. Since the 2008 financial crisis, they really have concluded that we're the declining power and that they're on the rise. The insecurity, and I think you've seen some of it recently, is that they're not sure of themselves. They're not as confident internally, domestically, as they might be. And part of that is a dictatorship in which you really don't know how the people of China necessarily feel about you. Uh, You saw the protests last year. Those were shocking to the Chinese leadership. They have high unemployment rates right now. Their economy has slipped. And growth rate last year, they say, was 3%. I think it could be lower than that. And it's an open question whether or not they can sustain the kind of growth rates that they had in the past. And if they can't sustain those, then the social contract that they have with the Chinese people, which is the Chinese people will stay out of politics if their lifestyle is increasing and the party is able to deliver on better lives for their children, better lives for themselves, then they allow the system to continue. But what if that slips? What if Beijing does have trouble getting back to a vibrant, robust economy? That could be a real problem for the leadership. So since they haven't right figured out what they want, which makes perfect sense, right? Most countries don't know exactly where they're going, you know, tomorrow, let alone 10 years from now. It sounds to me, right, like this is something that we could possibly shape, right, with the right policy approach. So 
with that in mind, you know, give us a report card on how you see the Biden administration's approach to China? Yeah, great question. First of all, I would say that on rebuilding and bolstering the alliances in East Asia, they've done a A-plus job. The Trump administration really did great damage to our relationships with countries like Japan and South Korea because he made statements that really shook them up. And I think that what we have seen with the rebuilding of the Quad, the new agreement between the United States, Australia, and the UK on sensitive sharing of military technologies, the plans to build submarines for Australia is very good. And we see Japan moving its defense spending up, working very well with our military in ways that they never have before. So I think the alliances are in great shape. I think in strategic competition with China, they've done the right things. The semiconductor export controls are a very smart idea, and I think there should be more of these kinds of controls in high technology areas like AI and quantum and other things where we simply should not let the Chinese get a hold of our secrets, our ability to move forward. On trade policy, I'm afraid to say I think they have not done as well. We have the problem that today trade agreements are out of fashion and our allies in East Asia want more trade agreements with us. Now, the administration has come up with what's called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, but frankly, at this point, it doesn't have a lot of substance to it yet. So that is a work in progress. I worry about North Korea. I don't think we're paying enough attention to how quickly and dangerously Kim is building his capabilities for tactical nuclear weapons, long-range strategic missiles, missile submarines, and it's almost a policy of benign neglect at this point. And the administration really needs to press China on this issue, not because we need the help, but because I truly believe it's not in China's interest to see a huge militarization of Northeast Asia. One of the interesting things that we're seeing in South Korea is some real discussion of maybe they need their own nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, it's the it's the tactical nuclear weapons in North Korea that really, you know, concern me because it suggests that Kim sees some sort of option for taking military action and either using them or having them as, uh, you know, a deterrent to a South Korean response. It's very worrisome. I ab- absolutely agree with you. And I do a lot of talking to the South Koreans these days. You know, they are a little shaky on the extended deterrent that we have. They're one of the things that interestingly comes out of the Ukraine experience is that East Asians see that while we're ready to help, we're not ready to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. And they wonder whether if they get into a conflict with North Korea, will we really be there with them? And the administration's trying to do some reassuring on this front, but it's still an open question for them. 
You know, one of the things that people always ask is, you know, what are the Chinese learning from Ukraine? You don't hear a lot of people ask, you know, what's Taiwan learning right. from Ukraine, right? And what's your sense of that? Is it the same as South Korea? Oh, I think the, the Taiwans, no, I think they're taking different lessons away. Because President Biden has been very clear, even though it's not official U.S. policy, that we would come to the defense of Taiwan. And I think they believe that. But what they are taking away is that they maybe have bought the wrong weapons over the past three years. They've been very enamored with getting fighter aircraft, other major capital items. And what, of course, Ukraine shows is that what you actually need are javelin missiles, anti-tank systems, air defense systems, very mobile systems, and they are moving in that direction. The other thing they've learned out of Ukraine is that they have to create a better military system. And so for many years in Taiwan, while there has been compulsory military service, it's only been for four months. And a soldier can barely learn to salute and march in four months. And so they have now extended compulsory military training to one year, which I think is a very positive development. So they're learning lessons quickly. Now, one of the problems is, will we be able to get them the kinds of systems they need quickly? Because we are stretching ourselves already over the Ukraine. But hopefully the Defense Department will figure that out. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this: central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis. Go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to four hundred thousand dollars. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to Figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure Equal Opportunity Lender NMLS 1717824 Terms and conditions apply Visit figure.com for more information For licensing information go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org So I'm just wondering Dennis you know you gave high grades to the administration on the approach to allies and on the strategic approach and not so good of grades on trade and in North Korea and I'm trying to think through you know why why the lower grades on trade 
um, and North Korea. And on trade, I'm wondering if it's simply politics, right? Um, it's tough to it's tough to roll back those those tariffs, right? In the political um, situation we're in, and and the North Korea, I'm just not sure. So I'm just what's your what's your sense of why? I think trade it's an easy one. It's domestic politics. You know, we were supposed to join what was what's called the TPP, uh, now named the CPTPP, but we couldn't because basically the U.S. Congress wouldn't approve a trade agreement of that sort because they thought it didn't have enough labor rights, human rights connected with it. And I think there's also a bit of protectionism now in the United States. Elements of the president's IRA have, for example, clauses in it which really make it very hard for people like the South Koreans to sell their electric vehicles in the United States. That has upset the South Koreans quite a bit. On North Korea, I would say it's a engagement fatigue on North Korea. Yeah. Successive administrations have tried and tried and tried. And, you know, my friend Victor Cha at Georgetown calls North Korea the impossible state. It really is incredibly difficult to engage the North Koreans. And this administration says they'll go anywhere at any time to negotiate. I also think, and this is where I disagree with some of my colleagues, I think the way to get North Korea to the table is through the Chinese. Again, does China really want to see Northeast Asia blow up? No, they don't have the same interests on the Korean Peninsula that we do. Certainly, they want to keep the Kim regime in place because it keeps us from being at their border. But I don't think they want to see the nuclearization of this problem. And when Secretary Blinken goes to Beijing next month, I hope this is one of the issues he uh, tries to move forward on. You're not only talking about possible nuclear weapons in South Korea, but Japan as well. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. So we talked about Dennis. We talked about this a little bit already, but I just want to get get more precise about it. So you mentioned you started your career as a China military analyst, and you know, with that in mind, how do we, the United States and Taiwan, and you know, how do we best deter China, you know, for the long term here in terms of of even thinking about taking action against Taiwan? Yeah. You know, I had the chance to brief President Bush when he was Governor Bush. I went down with John McLaughlin to his ranch in Texas. And of course, Taiwan was one of the questions that came up. And he asked me, kind of out of what I should have been doing in the briefing, to be honest with you, but he asked me what was the best policy on Taiwan. And I gave my personal opinion, and I said, Mr. President, the only thing we can do is kick the can down the road. And he looked at me and said, that's not a very elegant foreign policy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it may not be elegant, but it's all we've got. And why I say that is, this is an insoluble problem at this point. The Taiwan people are not going to be reunited with the kind of regime they see in Beijing. They're not going to be reunited uh, having seen what happened to Hong Kong and the promises that Beijing made to keep 
one country, two systems going, and then really reversing that whole thing. And so what we've got to do is find the way to kick the can down the road. And the way to do that, in my view, is we bolster Taiwan defenses. We make sure that Taiwan understands that we will be there for them. But at the same time, we reassure Beijing that we aren't interested in a change to the status quo, that we're not pushing for the independence of Taiwan. Because moves in that direction really could set off a war. And nobody wants that war. Now, one of the things I worry about today, I think with the best of intentions, American politicians are wanting to show support for Taiwan through legislation, through visiting the island. But you have to ask the question, what's going to secure the peace for Taiwan? And will these actions actually improve the lot of the people on Taiwan? Many people on Taiwan are a little nervous, of, for example, about all these visits by senior people in the Congress to Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. They're not sure this is going to help them. And again, these visits are done with the best of intentions, but we really have to think through how do we keep it stable. Yeah. So what do we, the United States, need to do militarily? Because as you know better than anybody, the Chinese have spent, you know, a couple of decades now, um, you know, building weapon systems to keep us away. So are there things that we need to do militarily that help deter? Absolutely. One of the key things, of course, and we're doing it, is to have allies involved in this situation, internationalize the Taiwan issue, not just with the Japanese and getting a commitment that doesn't have to be public with the Japanese, that they would allow us to use our bases in case of a conflict, but also Europeans and others. The more countries we can get involved on our side in this, it's a real advantage we have and something that Beijing would have to account for. The second thing is there are plenty of new, interesting technologies and capabilities that we should think about. Autonomous underwater vehicles. Chinese have very hard time finding our submarines. Mm. And I think that underwater vehicles, drones, some of these new capabilities we need to look at. One of the interesting things we're doing, which I think just was announced during the recent visit of the Japanese, is we're going to move some of our Marines from Okinawa to islands closer to Taiwan that the Japanese hold. I think there are three of them. And um, diversify our forces. One problem we have is that with the increased missile threat from the Chinese with precision missiles, our large military bases in East Asia are vulnerable. And we need to disperse our forces in a better way. For example, dispersing aircraft so that in wartime we would use actually other bases, not really bases, but other airfields in Japan. Some even think we should use highways so that the Chinese would have a much harder time with targeting our systems. So there are a lot of new thinking going on, and I think we really have technologies that we can begin to use that could make the difference in a conflict. 
Dennis, we have a couple of minutes left, and I want to ask two more questions. The first is, my sense, based on what senior U.S. officials have said, is I think there are some in the U.S. government who think the United States can impact politics in China. Do you agree or disagree? First of all, the Chinese Communist Party, while it looks like a monolith, isn't. One of the things that people forget is how many people within the Communist Party, Xi Jinping has purged. Some very prominent people are in jails around Beijing. Their families have been ruined by him. And I would not say that Xi Jinping is almighty and that he has the lock on power in China. This is a system that often has factions. People have what are called guanxi networks. And there are reformists still in the Chinese Communist Party. They're lying low for now. They're uncomfortable, for example, with his closeness with the Russians. They don't necessarily see that as in China's interest. And so I do think, while change is probably not coming in the short term, I wouldn't say that the trajectory that Xi Jinping has put China on is necessarily a long-term trajectory. And then last question, is Xi good for China or not? He's terrible for China. Xi Jinping is retrograde. Uh, Xi Jinping doesn't have, I think, a worldview that makes sense. There's an excellent book that I would point people to by Susan Shirk, one of my friends, called Overreach. And she makes the point that Xi Jinping has moved too far too fast and that the aggressive behavior that he's shown has turned countries in the region against China, that his policies on the economy with bringing back the state and the party into enterprise is really stunting innovation, stunting growth. And so I'm afraid that the Xi Jinping era, when it's looked at in the long run, will be looked at as definitely a period where China had setbacks and didn't make the kind of progress it could have. He's going to end up in exactly the same place as his friend Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's been great to have you, and uh, we'll have to we'll have to continue this conversation uh, down the road. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That was Dennis Wilder. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Plus. 
Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.